Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Brian. I'm an alcoholic. Brian. And you're a good group. The way, the way you recognize and appreciate that young lady who just picked up uh, the big book, I mean, it makes it a lot easier. I, I can just feel that you're good people. You're good people. And I'd like to let you know that New York sends their love. There's actually two of us up here sharing this, my message tonight. That's me and my silent partner, the signers. Perhaps we can give them a... a <laughs> I come from New York, ladies and gentlemen, on the Upper East Side in an area called Yorkville. And I was raised, it was first generation, I'm... Raised in the neighborhood of immigrants, German and Irish and Italian and Jewish and Slovakian. And, and it was a hard, it was a hard working people, tough work ethic, good religious people. The only requirement for becoming a man was a desire to work. As long as you had a desire to work, you could beat your wife, beat the kids, beat the system. You could beat anything you want as long as you went to work. And I come from that type of background. And I lived up in 97th Street, Lexington Avenue, and there was a stoop, a five-step stoop. And that was sort of the high, the high altar for the hoi polloi of the neighborhood. Whoever was anybody at that time sat at the top step of the stoop, and they told stories. The guy who just come out of uh, maybe a prison or war camp, or uh, they just got discharged from the service, whether they were going into prison or just coming out of prison or becoming a cop or a fireman, that was the top step was for, this, for the storyteller at the moment. And I get my shoeshine box after 3 o'clock. I get let out of school. I go along 2nd Avenue, 3rd Avenue, Lexington Avenue. And I get home, and they'd be all sitting out this stoop passing around these cardboard containers of beer. And they'd be telling stories of death and travel and war and destruction and jails and whorehouses. And I'd sit there on my shoeshine box looking up at these guys. I loved them. They were the big guys. I mean, these were the heroes. I mean, these were the war heroes. Not only, I mean, did they, they, they talk about these stories, but they would show you the proof. They'd break out the German helmet with the bullet hole right through it, or the broken bonsai sword and the splattered Japanese flag and the Belgian cigarettes and the Italian money. I mean, they, they really were the big guys. And uh, I would get off, and uh, there was one bar in the neighborhood. I was about 11 years old, and it was run by two big heavyset women. And uh, they, I remember, one of them wore these big Buster Brown shoes with the big heels. <laughs> And she would always get a shine off me. And I'd walk into the bar and, uh, and uh, she'd go over. I'd say, you want a shine in? She said, sure. She'd go over and uh, she'd sit up there and I'd shine the shoes. And then she'd turn around and she says, what is it you want, Brian? And I'd say the usual. She'd say, all right, go wash your hands. I go in and wash my hands. I come out, and there'd be maybe some war hero sitting on the on the stool. She'd go over. She'd punch him. Get off the stool. Get up there. Let Brian sit up. Come on, come on. And the hero would get off, and he'd help me up. And I'd get up in this big high stool, and she'd go behind the bar, and she'd get a napkin and she'd flatten it out, and she'd take two hard-boiled eggs and hit them where they stood up straight, and then she'd put a salt and a pepper there and a short beer, and I'd sit there. I mean, a salt and pepper shake all to myself. And two eggs sitting on the stoop, I mean, with a short beard, and a war hero just getting up so I could sit down. 
And somebody, I go, here you go, Brian. And I pick up the glass and I turn. And I was enveloped by this love. I was catapulted into the fourth dimension. I was beyond my wildest dreams, beyond my wildest expectations. I mean, the angel of booze put her arms around me and she said, we love you, Brian. Welcome. And I never felt, I was 11 years old, ladies and gentlemen, and I belonged to the whole thing. It was the greatest spiritual experience of my life. And when I was 13 years old, I had some money in my pocket and, uh, from hustling, from shoe shining. And a friend of mine, Johnny, and I, we went to this vacant building in 97th Street. And there was a whole camp of winos laying there. And these were the, mostly the veterans from the Second World War. And I went and I shook one. And I gave him a high sign. They come out. And I gave him enough money to go get us three bottles of Sneaky Pete, which was five-star Muscatel. I think it was about 22 cents a pint or something. And he went and got three pints, and he came back. He got his pint, and he shuffled back into the building. I went behind the vacant lots, and I sat down, and Johnny sat down. We started drinking. I cracked my pint, and he cracked his pint. We knocked off the two pints. We're laughing and giggling, body punching, punching each other. And I remember walking up to dig out this wine to go make the run to get his three more pints. Now, I remember walking up, and I'm pushing the people aside, and I'm pushing. It was my first experience with beer muscles. I was about this high, I was 13 years old, and I'm shoving the people aside. And this guy made the run, he come back, and I remember it was 2 o'clock, 2 o'clock on Saturday afternoon when I cracked that second pint of wine. And I remember putting it to my mouth, and next thing I knew, I come out of a blackout. My mother had my head over the kitchen tubs. I was throwing up all this wine into the tubs. My two brothers were leaning over. They were punching the hell out of me, screaming at me. Where had I been all day? Because the neighbors came in and told my mother, her son Brian is drunk, and he's staggering all over the street. My mother was out, my friends were out, and they scoured the whole neighborhood, and they didn't find me until about 11 o'clock at night. And I just didn't know. I mean, it was 2 o'clock in the afternoon when I cracked that second pint, and here it was 11 o'clock at night, and I just didn't know. And there was something exciting about this. I mean, it was something like it was the original Back to the Future yesterday. You know what I mean? One minute you're there, the next minute you're gone, you're challenging the gods. Next thing you come back, you're bloodied, but you're unbowed. I mean, it was my first experience. It was something manly about it. And I remember I, I ran in, I, one of these big guys, and I stopped him, and I started talking to him, and I started explaining what had happened. And I remember the guy was leaning down, looking at me. He was smiling. He had his hands. He was just rocking back and forth, looking at me, smiling. And when I was finished, he turned around. He said, kid, were you drinking? And I said, yeah, yeah, I was drinking. He said, were you drunk? I said, yeah, yeah, I was drunk. And he just leaned back and shrugged. He just smiled and shrugged. He didn't say anything. He just shrugged, tossed my hair, walked around, kept walking. It seems like I had been born and raised what I would call the alcoholic shrug. I had seen it all my life. I'd walk into the bar. They'd say, there wouldn't be a soul in the bar. i said, where the hell is everybody? they say, out of out looking for Joe's car. He doesn't know where he parked it last night. They'd be going up and down looking for his car. Somebody say, was Joe drinking last night? they say, yeah. Was Joe drunk? they say, yeah. They just smiled and shrugged. Didn't say anything. Just went about their business. I go in a bar. Mary, they say, Mary's on the phone. She's hysterical. She doesn't know where she left the kids. And somebody says, is Mary drinking? They say, yeah. Is Mary drunk? They say, yeah. And they just, they just shrugged. Didn't say anything. Now, when I, was 13, when, when I was 14 years old, you had to be 16 to get in the pool room. And that's where the big guys hung out. That's where the action took place. So I broke into the church directory. I robbed a whole pair of his baptismal papers along with the church seal. I forged my papers, making myself 16, and I sold off the rest. 
And at 16, you had to be, you had to be 18 to get your Siemens papers. So using the phony papers, I got my Siemens papers. And at 17, I ran away and I went to sea. And no matter where I traveled in the world, the shrug followed me. It was like some kind of international voodoo. It was like juju. No matter where I went, the shrug was there. My first trip, I'm 17 years old. I'm in a nightclub in Singapore. And I got into a big fight. And I got cut up and be- pretty bad beat up. And they came and they took me to the hospital where they stitched me up. Then they took me and they threw me in a, in a hole. Literally a tank in a hole. And they had me there for three days. Now in those days, Singapore was still a British crown colony. And when they pulled me out to put me in the docket, I looked like one of these punk rockers or one of these wrestlers today. Half of the head was shaved like a mohawk and all stitched up, and the rest of the hair was stuck and all discolored and pointed, and I'm all blood and stuck, and I'm, I'm a mess standing there in the docket. And sitting up there is the British magistrate, and he got a white curly wig on, black flowing robe, and representing me was the American counselor. And I remember the magistrate leaning over saying to the American counselor, he says, was that bloke drinking? And the American counselor leaned over to me and said, were you drinking? And I leaned over the dock and I looked at the American counselor, eyeball to eyeball, one American to another. I said, was I drinking? I said, of course I was drinking. You don't think I look like this sober, do you? <laughs> I said, what the hell kind of an American do you think I am anyway? I said, of course I was drinking. They were drinking. We're all drunk. And he looked up and he said, yes, your magistrate, the bloke was drinking. And the judge went like this, yeah. <laughs> the American consulate went like that. The captain went like that. I went like that. And ladies and gentlemen, that's my story in a nutshell. It was just one shrug after the other. <laughs> that's where alcohol took me. It reduced me and my life to a human shrug. They said the ship sailed for Panama last night. Was Brian aboard? The ship came back from Panama. Was Brian aboard? You know? Does Brian have to do time? Did Brian go home last night? Whatever happened to that nice girl he was going with? You know? Where the hell is Brian? And that's it. Now, I came back from the first trip, ladies and gentlemen, and I couldn't wait. I couldn't wait to take my rightful place on that stoop. I mean, and I came back, and right next to the stoop is the back... Entrance to the bar, the, the name of the bar was the Ekim, E-K-I-M. It's Mike spelled backwards, you know? And then the back of the bar. And I went in the Ekim there, and I made, I made, a, I cut a deal with them, and I bought a, 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 a keg of beer to throw this here party. A keg of beer, and right across the street there was a grocery store. I cut a deal with them that all the cake and candy and ice cream any kid can have, and I threw a party, a big welcome home party for myself. And I sat up there in the top step of the stoop. And then we had to get up the subway at 96th Street. And they'd all come and they'd see the crowd around the stoop. And they'd all come over and pay homage to Brian. And I sat up there and I told them stories of death and travel and destruction. And fighting jails and houses. And the little kids would look at me with love in the eyes. And they knew I was telling the truth. That I went out and I did it. I was just talking about it. I'd open the coat and I'd show them the label. Made in Hong Kong. You know? <laughs> Made in Japan. I mean, I was one of the big guys. And I remember about 9, 30, 10 o'clock at night, all of a sudden, the guys started peeling away. And these were my friends. And they were peeling away because they had to go home and do homework. These guys were still in high school. I'm only 17 years old. And by 2 o'clock in the morning, I'm sitting there, all by myself. I wasn't drunk. I wasn't sober. 
I'm sitting there and the place was a mess with broken containers and, and urine and cigarettes and candy wrappers and that. And I'm sitting there and with this tremendous sense of abandonment, this tremendous sense of loss. And the owner, the bartender, leaned out. He said, Brian, I'll be closing up. You want anything before I go? I said, I'll be right in. And I remember standing up with this tremendous sense of, uh, of loneliness. And I walked in. I just got in the back of the bar. The guy yelled over. He said, Brian, do me a favor. Lock the door. And I was 17. I turned around and I locked the door behind me in the saloon. And I was to hear two words screamed out. Two words that literally turned my blood to ice. Two words that dominated my life. Two words without any feelings or emotions or caring. All of a sudden, the lights started to blink, and then I heard, last call. <laughs> well, let me tell you, when an alcoholic hears last call, they stand up. All of a sudden, pandemonium breaks out in the bar, and it's like a, like a Wall Street flop or something. They're all going, here, four, three, here, two, here, four, here, you know. And the blind scene, the deaf here, and, and, and a woman come running out, pulling up their panties, here, two, two, here, you know. And that was it. It just went on, ladies and gentlemen. just went on trying to make last call. Standing up trying to make last call. In 1969, I was in a real bad drunk. A real bad drunk, this one. And I come out of a blackout and I had a phone on my hand. And I'm weaving back and forth, listening to this here voice. And I'm coming out, coming together, and I'm listening to the voice, and I don't know who it is. So I kept throwing words out, trying to hope maybe the guy would bite. I could fill in around a sentence. And the guy kept saying, take it easy, Brian, take it easy. Give us your address, we'll give you, I'll send a couple of men over to talk to you. And I couldn't figure out who this guy was. The once my address sent a couple of men over to talk to me. I said, what do you mean, uh, send a couple of men over to talk to me? I said, who the hell are you anyway? He says, I'm so-and-so from Intergroup. Now, if you've never heard the word Intergroup before, you have to admit it sounds like some kind of communist word. You know? I said, Intergroup? I said, what the hell are you talking about? I said, who the hell are you? He says, I'm so-and-so from Alcoholics Anonymous, Intergroup. I said, Alcoholics Anonymous, Intergroup? I said, how the hell did you get my number? He said, you just called us up. I said, I called you up? What the hell would I call you up for? He said, take it easy, Brian, take it easy. Give us your address, we'll send a couple of men. I said, you hold it right there, mister. Don't you send in anybody around my house starting trouble. You want something? I'll give you something. I'll give you a punch in the puss. That's what I'll give you. I hung up the phone. I sat down. The sweat started pouring off me. My mind racing back in retrospect trying to figure out what in God's name did I do this time that intergroup would be after me, you know? <laughs> now, the only thing I knew about intergroup was the old Second World War war movies, you know, when they had the, 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 the intergroups. Humphrey Bogart, or, you know, or Errol Flynn, or, you know, where, and in those movies, when, when Intergroup was after you, it meant one thing, you know? So I sat there in sounds, and I got up, and I walked over, and I peeked out the keyhole, thinking maybe there's an Intergroup guy in the hallway. And I got up, and I, I walked across, and I pulled the shades out, and I searched out the doorways and the lampposts, thinking maybe there's an Intergroup guy there spying up at me. But what the hell did I know about Intergroup? Now, 1970, I'm on a wicked drunk, real wicked one. I mean, this one's wicked. And I come out of a blackout, and I'm weaving in and out, and I'm talking to this voice again. And the guy said, take it easy, Brian. And this time, he told me where the meeting was, and I went to the meeting. And the meeting was the old Butterfield Group in 72nd Street between 2nd and 3rd Avenue. 
And the only thing I heard at that meeting was, stay out of one bar, one bar at a time. Now I'm sure now, what the guy was saying was stay away from one drink, one drink at a time. But the way I heard it was stay out of one bar, one bar at a time. <laughs> and I walked out, I walked up to uh, 72nd Street and 3rd Avenue, and I walked from 72nd Street and 3rd Avenue all the way to 93rd Street and 3rd Avenue. And there were bars to the right and saloons to the left and beer gardens and cafes, and I walked straight ahead, a man on a mission. And I got up to one of the saloons I drank in on 93rd Street on 3rd Avenue. I walked in, I ordered up my usual sobering up drink, which was a large club soda with a twist of lemon. And I'm standing at the bar, and next thing I felt my, my body starting to shake, and I went into a fit. And when I come out of the fit, I was in the enamelance with this friend of mine, Jackie, and his big attendant is kneeling on top of me. He's trying to ram something in my mouth, and I couldn't figure out. I heard the silence, who this guy was, what the hell was going on, and he's ramming my mouth. I grabbed him. I rolled him over. I got on top of him. I saw punching the shit out of him. He started screaming, stop the ambulance. The ambulance came to a screeching halt. The, uh, the driver come around, opened the door. He looked out to see what's going on. I ran over. I gave him a kick and a push. I hit the ground. I took off like a shot. Jackie ran over. He stomped him in the face. He jumped down. He took off. I'm running up the street. Jackie's chasing me. I run down the street. Jackie's run. I spot a bar. I'm running in the bar. I'm huffing and puffing. Jackie comes running in after. He's huffing and puffing. I grab him aside. I said, what happened, Jackie? What's all that about? What the hell happened? He says, I don't know. He says... He says, you come in the bar, you're all right. Next thing, you're flopping all over the floor in some kind of fit. Now, the only thing I could attribute that fit to was this intergroup anonymous stuff, you know? <laughs> I mean, they told me to stay out of one bar, one bar at a time. I walked all the way to 93rd Street, bars all over the place. I go in one stinking bar, and I woke up in an ambulance. <laughs> I remember ordering up a drink, thinking about it, and then I had... I, I remember saying to Jackie with awe, I said... You know, Jackie, no wonder those people are anonymous. They could kill you in broad daylight and never leave a fingerprint. I said, that's it with this anonymous stuff, Jackie. They had one crack at me and they goddamn near killed me. That's it. In 1969, I'm on a ship and we were about three days out of the Suez Canal. And I was on a drunk. I had booze stashed all over the ship. We robbed it out of the hole. Booze all over the place. And I come off watching. I'm sitting in my forecastle drinking, and all of a sudden the worry come down to batten down the hatches, batten down the port, all the storm was coming up. And I'm drinking, and the more I'm drinking, the more I think this storm is coming after me. And all of a sudden the storm hitting, the ship is rocking and rolling, and I'm getting peeved up, and I said, that's it. I'm, I don't run from nobody. I threw out the bottle, I went out on deck, opened the door, went out, and I'm laughing at the storm, and I'm peeing against it, and I'm throwing punches, and I'm singing, and they're slamming me all over the place. And the wave picks me up, slams me up against the housing, shatters my shoulder. Uh, so they had me, they wanted to take me off in Eden, I think, Eden or something. And I, I, I wouldn't do it. I figured now we go through the canal because the first stop is Naples. If you have to get off a ship, get off in Naples. The hell with getting off in Iran somewhere, you know. <laughs> so the ship got there, they took me off. They had me in the hospital for three days and they put me in a body cast. And I remember the, uh, the, uh, the agent picking me up and we had to go all the way from Naples all the way to Rome to get a plane to fly back to New York. And we got... Finally made it. They had me in a body cast with this big bar underneath it. And we got to Rome to the airport. And uh, we had about a two-hour layover for the flight. And I said to the guy, I said, look, you don't have to hang around here. I said, you got married? You're married? He says, yeah. I said, you got kids? Yeah. I said, look, I know where the, pl the plane is. I said, I'll just get some postcards, let the boys know what the hell is going on. Go ahead. Go back to Naples. 
And he was grateful. He took off. I'm sitting at the bar there with the big bar, and I'm writing these things. And I, I give me a cappuccino. I'm drinking a cappuccino. And then I turn around and say, throw a little brandy in there. Throw a little brandy. And I'm drunk as hell. I'm first class on a plane. I'm drinking everything. When I ran, the, the, that runway went down in, uh, in Kennedy Airport, I come off it like a drunken runaway construction boom. I'm running, banging into people. They're all ducking. I'm like that. I fell on the escalator. The bar jammed it. And everybody falling on top of me. And I, 1970. I'm on a ship with five days out of Seattle bound for Japan. I'm drinking booze stashed all over the ship. The word comes out, I'm batting down the hatches. You know, we're in for a ride. And I figured the storm, the storm, that storm is still after me. I said, well, I'm going to straighten it out now. I'm straightening this out once and for all. The storm hit. I'm out in the deck and I'm laughing, peeing, singing, dancing, singing. It picked me up, slammed me up against the housing and shut it, the lower part of my back. So they got me belly down until we got to Yokohama. They took me off in Yokohama. They operated on me, had me there for 16 days. The agent picks me up, takes me all the way to Tokyo now. We get there, there's a little layover. I said to the guy, you married? He says, yeah. I said, you got kids? I said, look, man, I'm a grown man. I don't need you here. I said, I'll just get some postcards, let the boys in the bar know what happened. He takes off and sitting at the bar. I see the kettle there. I tell the guy, hey, heat up a little sake. Yeah, a little sake. I'm drunk as hell on the plane. I passed out. I came to. There was a whole puddle of blood on the seat where the drain had come out. And I was hemorrhaging. And they had me in the back with my pants down. And they were packing me with old-fashioned Kotexes. They got me all packed. By the time we get to uh, Anchorage, Alaska, they had to get my luggage out to change the clothes. And by the time I get home, I'm drinking home. A couple of days later, I'm thinking about this going to sea stuff. And I figured, the hell with this going back to sea. It seems every time I go out there, there's a whole school of angry Moby Dicks out there waiting for me. <laughs> I mean, I didn't mind going to sea, but I don't want to die over it, you know. So I went back working in the tunnels. I'm a retired compressed air worker. I'm a sandhog in New York, sandhog. And for those of you who don't know what the sandhogs are, where the compressed air workers in New York? The one that work underneath the water and, and put this, the, you know, where the compressed air workers, you know. <laughs> And I was on a drunk in 71. I was on this real bad drunk, and I heard banging at my door. Open up the door, Brian. Open up, I'll kick it in. And it was the union delegate, you know. So I opened up the door, and he said, I'm saying, shut up, man. Keep your voice on. What do you want, the whole neighborhood and all my business? Shh, quiet. And I let him in. And he put the light on. I said, man, what the hell are you doing? This place stinks. He went and he opened the window, opened the drapes, opened the door. Man, he said, what the hell are you doing? It was, I mean, it was a mess. Puke and blood and cigarettes and whatever else. I said, what, what are you making a big deal? I'm just having a couple of drinks. He said, how long do you think you've been having a couple of drinks? Something in his tone told me, I, I don't know, you know. So I, I figured, well, I'll get a jump on him. I'll claim a week. I said, well, about a week. He said, Brian, you've been on this drunk six weeks. He said, when the hell are you coming back to work? Now, I was the dynamiter on the job. So he says, when are you coming back? I said, what's today? He said, Wednesday. I said, all right. I said, I'll be back Monday. He said, Brian, please. I said, look, you can take book on it. I'll be back Monday. Now, all I ever needed, all around the world, no matter where I was, to come off a drunk was three days. All I needed was a floor, toilet, water, and silence. And you go through the whips and the jingles and the sweats and the horrors and the runs. And usually it took about three days to get all the badness out. And once the badness out, well, yeah, I didn't feel too bad. And uh, I went back to work Monday morning. At 9 o'clock, they called for the dynamite. I get on the cage with 300... Uh, with, uh, with 300 sticks of dynamite, we drop 850 feet down the tunnel level, we go in, and before you go into the compression chamber, all the lights on the other side in the tunnel is shut off. 
for fear that maybe once the dynamite enters, enters the, uh, the tunnel, there might be a, an electric charge or something set off the hill. So, and then we went up to the heading. When you get up to the heading, everything, you load the dynamite with air lights and flashlights and headlights, and it's quiet and eerie, and they're loading it, and I went into a, into a fit. And they're saying, what's going on? What's going on? They say, I don't know. It's Brian. Where is he? He's there. He's over there. Watch out. You're standing on him. I'm flopping all over the place, pulling out the dynamite, flopping, you know. So they called for the ambulance, and the ambulance heard there was dynamite involved. They called the bomb squad. There was a lot of bombing going on in New York at the time. When I come out, they had him up there with binoculars and flat jackets, and had, I'm, I'm on the, tied down on the stretcher, peed my pants. I come up, and after it was all settled, the dust settled, they turned around, they, they claimed I was an epileptic. And they wouldn't let me back in the tunnels for fear that maybe I could have set the charge off and wiped out the tunnel. So I had to go to Lenox Hill Hospital for a whole series and battery of epilepsy tests, which I did. And a couple of days later, I'm sitting outside the neurosurgeon's office. He stuck his head out. He said, Mr. Mines? I said, yeah. He gave me the high sign. I got up and I walked into his office. And before I walked into the office, I stopped. And I took a big, deep breath. And I walked in. He's sitting there and he's shuffling around the charts. He said, well, Mr. Mines, everything here looks pretty negative. And I heard the word negative. And I let my breath out just a little bit. I said, what do you mean negative, doctor? He said, well, here things look pretty good. And I let my breath out just a little bit more. I said, you mean to say, doctor, I'm not an epileptic? He said, nah, you're not an epileptic. You're an alcoholic. I said, yeah, 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 yeah. Like he's trying to skirt the issue, you know. I said, yeah, yeah, I'm not an epileptic, right? He said, no, you're an alcoholic. I said, then I didn't have an epileptic fit in the tunnel. He said, no, you had an alcoholic seizure. I said, oh, thank God, thank God. I hugged him. I mean, what the hell did I care about being an alcoholic? As far as I'm concerned, any man worked assault was an alcoholic. The key was, I wasn't an epileptic. They're the ones that'll get you fired, you know? So I had him put it in writing. I went back and I saw the safety engineer and I threw it on the desk. I said, here, I'm an alky, not an epi. Here it is, right here. <laughs> alcoholic. He said, oh, so you're an alcoholic. I'm Brian. I said, yeah. He said, so am I. I said, no kidding. He said, you're going back to work? I said, sure. He said, you want a drink? I said, sure. Closed the door. He pulled out the bottle. I started sucking on a bottle and life was good. They called for the dynamite. I loaded the thing. I'm going down the cage and life was good. I mean, here I was. I had my job locked. I was only in Nokia. I wasn't in Nepi. They couldn't fire me. I just discovered an, uh, an alcoholic buddy with a bottle tucked away. You know, life was good. But there was a friend of mine, Joe. Joe and I are born and raised in the neighborhood. We went to sea together, and here we are working the tunnels. And he had been sober in AA for seven years. He had heard about the trouble I was in. And he come up, and he had been 12-stepping me over there. And he had come up, and he said, Brian, please, why don't you come to a meeting with me? And this time I agreed. And the, and the only reason I agreed is because I couldn't seem to get a handle on these convulsions. I mean, I'm convulsing in subway platforms in the middle of the street. Now I'm convulsing on the job, and I'm in trouble, and I agreed to go. And at that meeting, a speaker stood up there, and he said, he guaranteed it's impossible to get drunk if you don't pick up the first drink. If you don't pick up that first drink, it's impossible to get drunk. And as the meeting ended, I got up, and I made in the beeline for the staircase, Everybody stopped, and they started to say the Our Father. I spun around, and I was shocked. And there was my boy, Joe. He had his eyes closed, and he was holding his two fingers, rocking back and forth, saying the Our Father. And I looked at him, and I said to myself, Ah, oh, Joe, what the hell did they do to you, Joe? 
I mean, here was a man we're born and raised, went to sea together, and there he is now, rocking to Jesus and Psalm singing with the best of them. <laughs> After when we went to a restaurant for coffee, and we're sitting down there, and everybody from AA come in, they start filling in around, and Joe's talking to me. I said, Joe, how long are you in AA? He said, seven years. I said, Joe, just between you and I, we go back a long way. Do you understand? Did you understand that man back there when he said it's impossible to get drunk if you don't pick up the first drink? Did you understand that, Joe? And Joe said, sure, yeah, I understand it. I said, Joe, please stop and think just for one minute. Deep down in the caverns of your bowels, do you understand it's impossible to get drunk if you don't pick up the first drink? He said, sure, I understand. What the hell are you trying to say? I said, Joe, what I'm trying to say, this is my first meeting and I understand it. Of course you can't get drunk if you don't pick up the first drink. Can't you see you're being bullshitted, Joe? You're throwing good money in the basket full of happy horseshit. What's wrong with you? He said, look, Brian, please, please. He pushed the meeting book. He said, why don't you try 90 days, 90 meetings? And I pushed the meeting book back. I said, look, Joe, maybe you don't mind being here for seven years sitting in the front row, humped over, squinting up at the speaker, slurping your lips for sobriety like some kind of AA Quasimodo. I said, that's not my idea what being a man is all about. Joe, you're from the neighborhood. What the hell happened to you? He said, Brian, please, please, why don't you try 90 days, 90 Take the meeting book. I said, Joe, I'm your buddy now. Mark my words, Joe, I'm your buddy. I'm telling you right now, if you keep hanging around with those people over there, you're going to be here for another seven years. Just then the, the church bells where we left started ringing. I broke out laughing. I said, Joe, you better get back up there. Somebody took your job. And that was in the fall, the fall of 71. And I went through all the holidays, all the holidays, never picking up a drink. I'm back at the job making big money. I'm wheeling and dealing with the girls, with the money. I mean, I, I had a good time. Just didn't pick up a drink. Now, I lived on 86th Street between 2nd and 1st Avenue. And that's where the St. Patrick's Day parade breaks up. And that's where every year hundreds of people come. And I know everybody. That's I'm born and raised in Yorkville. And my two nieces came in from Westchester. And I remember walking up to the parade and a Russian cassock hat on with big sprigs of shamrock and a big green tie and a camel hair coat and gloves. And everybody's screaming and yelling at me. My nieces are holding my arm. I'm slapping. I get up to where my crew was. I hadn't had a drink now in about four months. And they're passing a bottle and the bottle came to me. I pulled the plug, and this time I was in the grip of the grape for two weeks. For two weeks, I was so, so frightened and so scared that I never left the apartment for two weeks. For two weeks, I was totally isolated. I had the phone off the hook and the door locked and the shades drawn. And the, uh, I'd send over in the morning and have the bottle of booze, have the booze delivered. And the only friends and enemies I had was the furniture, and I loved it. Two weeks of total isolation. I would stand there in the middle of the room with my head up, my shoulders thrown back, the wind gently tussling my hair, my eyes squinting with mirth, searching out the horizon, my nostrils flared with excitement, my teeth bad with lust, my chest slowly heaving, my hands opening and closing with anticipation. I would stand there truly a man of destiny, a man amongst men, all things to women. Jack and Nasser would be on the ground with her arms around my knees saying, I love you, Brian. Please take the money. Take the money. And I'd throw my head back and say, money? You can't buy a man like me with money. And I'd open the door and I'd throw her out. Next minute, they'd be banging at the door. I'd open it up. It'd be Sophia Lauren. She said, I heard about you, Brian. Please, just once. 
just once. I crawled out and I slammed the door. And I yelled through the door, why don't you goddamn women leave me alone? Can't you see I'm only human? Leave me alone. I'd be standing there in the middle of the room huffing and puffing, huffing and puffing because I had just knocked out Muhammad Ali for the heavyweight championship of the world. And I would always knock him out March 16th so they would beg me to lead the St. Patrick's Day Parade. And lead it I would. And I could see myself coming down 5th Avenue making that wide turn on 86th Street on 5th Avenue, the home stretch. And the mayor would be standing there and the major domo had the stick in there. And right when Brian, the champion of the world, when Brian was in place, the, the mayor would give him the high sign, he'd bring the stick down and the pumps and the fighting, and the drums, and the singing in the wing, and the crowd going crazy. There's Brian. My God, there's Brian. And the cops would be on the ground with their arms linked, trying to hold back the women, and the women would be knocking their heads up. There's Brian. My God, there's the champ. There's Brian. And every now and then I'd hear a cop say, What a man. What a man. <laughs> I'd be standing in the middle of the room, weaving back and forth, holding up a bottle. And these big tears would be coming down my cheeks. And the hair would be wild and matted. And the big bubbly snots coming out of my nose. And the grimacing mouth. And the, and the t-shirt with everything I drank and puked would be all over the t-shirt. And barely hanging off my hips would be these warm, wrinkled, faithful, farty pair of shorts. And my toes caked with black, dried, smelly sweat. And I'd be weaving back and forth with these tears of love and gratitude pouring down my cheeks. Because it was the third year in a row that I had won the Academy Award. <laughs> well, anyway, April Fool's Day, April 1st, April Fool's Day, 1972, Intergroup finally came and got me. <laughs> and they sent me off to a five-day detox, and I don't ever want to forget that. I remember they were taking me down the drunk section. And the nurse had one on, and my brother-in-law had the other on, and the hair was wild and matted from that two-week drunk and I had a two-week growth and the vomity, drubbly old T-shirt and the pea-stained pair of pants with the fly broken, half open, half closed, so I never needed a belt. You just pull them off, kick them in the corner, or you pick them up and put them on. And these paint-stained pair of slippers, the left foot on the right and the right foot on the left. And here they're taking me down. And we got to the close to the nurse's section. Right opposite was the men's lounge. And through the corner of my eye, I saw this guy step out. And he saw the three of us come down, he stepped in, I could hear him say, hey, come out and look at this guy, real wolf man. Take a look at this guy here. And they all come out and they start laughing. The guy, don't, don't touch him, nurse, you get locked, you are. Your, your fingers are rot off a day at a time. He got black lungs, don't they? And they're all laughing. Now, this is the first time in my life that a man or woman ever laughed at me, and I couldn't do anything about it. I remember standing there, and this soul-sickening voice, this voice that had tortured me, ever since I was a child, was digging into me, saying, look at them laughing at you. You've been nothing but a disgrace all your life. You'll never amount to nothing. You never were anything. No matter where you sailed, you left an oil slick a mile wide. For God's sake, once in your life, try to do something right. Try to be a man. Get your head up. Don't let these guys laugh at you. Look at them in you. And I kept trying to get my head up to look at these guys, and I just couldn't get it up. It seems like somebody had used a machete and it cut up all my neck muscles and my back muscles. I just couldn't get my head up. And if there's one thing at that moment I wish I could have done, and that was to grab myself by the head of the hair, yank my face up, and spit right into it. It was the second day of my 38th birthday. I was physically, mentally, spiritually bankrupt, financially bankrupt, and sexually bankrupt. 
I see now that I've been slipping in and out of intimacy since I was about 28 years old. And it was tough sexually faking it. I was a merchant seaman. I was a bartender. I was a sand hog. I'd be working the bar, and the guys would be standing there talking about the girls. And this guy took the girl home last night, and he made love two or three times. And he took the girl home, and he made love two or three times. And this guy here took the girl home, and he made love two or three times. Well, I see in sobriety that if these guys were taking these girls home, making love two or three times a night, one thing is for sure, they didn't drink what I was drinking, that's for sure. <laughs> you don't drink that stuff and go home make love two or three times a night. You'll go home and fall out of the bed two or three times a night. <laughs> I know for a fact the closest that they're going to come to sex that night is when they pee-pee two or three times. <laughs> now, I don't want to believe it is sex thing, but the only reason I'm throwing it out there is because maybe... Maybe there's some guy out there that kind of knows what I'm talking about. As for the women, they know what I'm talking about. <laughs> they had me there when they got out. They said, 90 days, 90 meetings, 90 days, 90 meetings. Get a meeting book, get a sponsor, sit up front. Joe was waiting for me. I come out, I got the meeting book. I sit up front, and after the meeting, I buttonhole one of the old timers. I said, look, just between you and me, nothing to do with the people around here. I said, where did you get this concept of 90 days, 90 meetings? Where did you get 90 days, 90 meetings? How come not 75 days and 75 meetings? How did, and none of the old timers knew. Not only didn't they know, but they couldn't tell us. They said, look, Brian, that had nothing to do with AA. In AA, we don't pick up the first drink one day at a time. We don't drink one day at a time. But thinking about 90 days, 90 meetings, for you, that's not a bad idea. Maybe you give it a little time to get rid of that anger. Maybe you'll see things a little bit differently. But that wasn't good enough. I had to find out where did they get 90 days, 90 meetings. Because I was not about to make the same mistake twice. I remember when I was in school, I was always being beaten and punished over these mystical, esoteric numbers. I remember it was the Ten Commandments, you know, the 12 uh, lost tribes of Israel, the seven deadly sins, the eight wonders of the world, the nine planets, the seven seas, the four winds. Moses was in the desert for 40 years. Columbus was on the Atlantic for 40 days, 40 nights. And now me, 90 days, 90 meetings. <laughs> but it didn't take me long to figure it out. And I finally came to the conclusion that you have to be here 90 days, 90 meetings, just to understand what the hell they're talking about. Because there's a very sophisticated way of speaking at these meetings. It was like a, a, a secret jargon. The topic would be, you see, when you made a decision not to make a decision, you made a decision. They go, oh my God, what a topic. You see, at the very second of not taking that action, by not taking the action, you took the action. You go, oh my God, circuit speaker, circuit speaker. The one that got me was, you see, you can't keep it unless you give it away. In fact, you have to give it away to keep it. And the more you give, the more you get. And I lean over and I say to Joe, Joe, what the hell are they giving away? <laughs> they don't work. They're all unemployed on welfare. Joe, they're even on alimony. Can't you see? He say, see what? I say, can't you see? We're being bullshitted, man. We're trauma. He said, my God, are you still in that kit? And he get his corp and his cigarettes and I see him go sit somewhere else. And I say to myself, go ahead, run. Run, you stinking AAS kisser. <laughs> I mean, that's all they seem to do around here. Stay away from a drink, come to meetings, and kiss ass. 
And I said, let me tell you, Joe, it'd be a cold wind blowing through a hell of a day that you get a man like me to bend over and start kissing ass. <laughs> and it seems like the first 90 days I kept running into the same cluster of speakers. I kept running in, and I nicknamed the speakers. They all had a little gimmick. I say, uh-oh, there's first things first, Bob. One day at a time, eat it, you know. Easy does it, June. And they had all these nicknames, you know. And he introduced this speaker, and his name was Charlie. And Charlie got up there, he went into a story, he said, I picked up a drink, I fell on a flight of stairs, and I surrendered. And they all started to applaud and hug and kiss him, get his autograph and buy him to parties. I sat there stunned. He picked up a drink, fell on a flight of stairs and surrendered. Man, I fell off gangways, bar stools, garbage cans. Never in a million years would I ever stand up in public and tell a shit story like that. I mean, he stood up there with a big smile and told it right in front of the girls. I remember saying, man, this guy will never get a girlfriend with a story like that. He'd be better off saying he fell up the stairs. I nicknamed him Staircase Charlie. A week later, they introduced Staircase Charlie again. I said, ooh, there's Staircase. And I sat up front, and I zeroed in on every word that this man had to say because it was important to me to find out what kind of a staircase it was that made him surrender. Now, maybe he's going to say he picked up a drink and he fell down a four-story spiral staircase. Well, all right, you get on. Yeah, all right, yeah, maybe. Or maybe he's going to say he picked up a drink and he went five stories between the banisters. Well, I go along with that one. But the way Charlie looked and the way he dressed and the way he spoke, in my heart I knew that this guy was strictly a two-step foyer job. And he went into a store and he said, I picked up a drunk, I picked up a drink, I fell on a flight of stairs and I surrendered. They all applauded and hugged him, kissed him, invited him to parties. I remember sitting there with a knot in my stomach saying, why don't this guy tell him the real story? He had been drinking all day. He was drunk. That's why he fell on the stairs. You see, they kept telling me, Brian, keep bringing the body, bringing the body. Sooner or later, the head will follow. Here it was a week later, I heard the same story, but this time I heard a little bit different. And they introduced Charlie about a week later. Now, this is the third time within a month I'm hearing this guy. I knew his story by heart. And I'm sitting up there and I'm listening. And as Charlie got close to picking up that first drink, I felt my stomach tighten up. I said, uh-oh, watch that drink, Charlie. Watch the drink. And Charlie got closer. I said, Charlie, can't you see what you're doing? Watch that drink, Charlie. And Charlie said, and I picked up a drink. And I said, oh, well, grease the banisters. There goes Charlie. <laughs> was the first time in my life, ladies and gentlemen, I identified and, uh, and, and understood it was the first drink. I knew, I was at that moment, I understood the dynamic of the first drink. I knew once he picked up that drink, no way in hell could he beat the staircase. No way in hell. He was going head over heels. I laid money from here to Vegas. This guy was going down. It was the first time I understood, ladies and gentlemen, it was the first drink, the breakthrough. And I kept coming to meetings. And I stayed away from the step meetings and the closed meetings and discussion meetings because the concept of God. I'd walked away from the God that I was born and raised in at 14 and nobody, especially AA, was going to start ramming God down my throat. But I happened to be at a beginner's meeting when it went into the concept of God. And one said it was this, another said it was that, another said it was this. And I remember this man raising his hand saying the way he had heard God was G-O-D, good orderly direction. Good, orderly direction. Speaking only for myself, ladies and gentlemen, when I heard that good, orderly direction, it seems like my chest split open. 
and centuries of venom and stink and anger and confusion poured out. Here now was a God that I could understand good orderly direction. As far as I was concerned, that's what good orderly, what God was supposed to have been all along was good orderly direction. But where I came from, the way they presented God, I just couldn't buy. And I remember sitting down sort of relaxed and looking at the speaker. And behind the speaker he had the slogans. And he said, first things first, keep it simple, let go and let God. And the way I read it was, first things first, keep it simple, let go and let good orderly direction. And I literally turned my will and my life over to care of good orderly direction as I understood it, which was you. A.A. And the only thing you were asking of me was, Ryan, try to stay away from a drink. Try to do the best you can. Try to get to a meeting. And everything in my life became good orderly direction. And it wasn't so much that it was a concept of God because the old timers kept telling me, Brian, don't you ever worry about God. You'll pick up a drink that won't be sending God to the detox. They'll be sending you to the detox. It's you and that first drink. But the word that got me, ladies and gentlemen, was that word direction. All my life I had been looking for some type of direction. I'd be a liar if I stood up here and told you all I ever did was drink and carouse. That's not me, ladies and gentlemen. I was always trying to be a man. I was always shining my shoes trying to put my best foot forward. I was always washing my face, combing my hair, trying to make that first good, long-lasting impression. I was always trying to do the right thing. I was always trying to get a job. There's that saying, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I drank with the best of intentions. I had the best of intentions all my life. I was always an alcoholic. I was always picking up a drink. And I was always and always and always. And here I was sitting in a room full of alcoholics offering me good all the direction in my life. Ladies and gentlemen, I may have been everybody's drunk. But I assure you, I was never anybody's fool. You're not looking at some jerk when you look at this man. I knew right then and there, if I didn't make it with you, I was not going to make it as a human being. And everything, everything became good all the direction. And I go up to the job, and I see the guys in the job drunk, fighting. I walk down the street, I see a man open a cab and yank a woman out of the cab by the hair of the head, yank it back into the bar because he hadn't finished drinking yet. I see some young, old, dirty man panhandling on the corner trying to get enough for a drink. I say there, but for the grace of good orderly direction goes I. And it simply made sense because I no longer did any of those things because I trusted in you. I didn't pick up the first drink. I kept coming to meetings. I was sober. I was sober about a year. And I was working four to midnight. I was still with the dynamite. And I would get up early in the morning and I'd sit up in 86th Street outside this nightclub, Bonnie Googles, and I had a bench. And usually I'd get up and have breakfast and I'd sit there, have a cigarette, some coffee, get myself together, and I had to get on a train for about an hour to get to work. And this one particular day I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden I see this lady come up with a little kid, and the kid looked like a little Shirley Temple, little dimpled knees and, and curls in the hair. And the kid spots me and he comes running up and takes a big leap up on my lap with this lollipop. Now I got the cigarette in one hand and coffee, and I'm looking at this kid, and the kid is pushing a lollipop at me. And I'm looking at the kid, and the mother come up, and the, she says, she wants you to lick a lollipop. So I took the lollipop, put it in my mouth, rolled my eyes around, made a big fuss out. The kid would look at me. I took it out. She popped the lollipop in her mouth. She jumped off my lap, and she started skipping up the street. The mother nodded at me. I nodded at the mother, and they're walking away. And I'm watching them as they walk away. And all of a sudden, this tremendous feeling, this tremendous feeling of love, this tremendous feeling nearly lifted me off the bench. And I had never experienced anything like this before. And I kept saying to myself, this is good all the direction. 
Because everything, since I had heard it, was good all the direction, good, better, and different. And I said, this is good all the... And I heard myself say to myself, nah, Brian, this is not good all the direction. This is the God they've been talking about. This is the goddess of... The God of the rooms. This is the God of sobriety. And I knew it to be true. I leaned back and I and thought about it. I said, God, I was just overwhelmed with gratitude to this God. I said, God, God bless you, God. Like I went over and said to his boss or something, you know. <laughs> I mean, what the hell do I know about God? I'm waiting to go to work, you know. And all of a sudden, ladies and gentlemen, with the staircase, Charlie and, and the lollipop and everything really starting, I was four years sober. And I got a call from San Francisco that they were taking a bicentennial ship out of Beth, Maine, and they were going to crew her up with an East Coast crew. Now, I hadn't sailed since 1970 since they flew me home from Yokohama, but I was still registered. And they asked me would I care to be one of the, uh, the crew, and I was delighted. I said, yes. They said, all right, go to the Coast Guard, get all your shots, be ready. In about two weeks, we're going to fly a crew up to Beth, Maine to uh, take out the bicentennial ship, named the Maine. And about a week before I was to leave, a friend of mine, Roy, was on a drunk. And Ronnie, his sponsor, another guy, was going to pick him up. And when he got there, he opened the window, he dove out 27 stories. And it was a mess. I mean, uh, the police were there. He was married, had five kids. The five kids was there. The wife was there. The fire department was a mess. Now, Roy was half Jewish and half Irish Catholic. And the mother flew in and they uh, cremated him and had a... a a memorial service form, and the recriminations and finger pointing going back what to do with the ashes. Now, Roy had gone to sea when he was a kid. So I got together with his sponsor. I got the, uh, his mother and I got the wife to sit down, and I said, why not give me the ashes, and I'll give him a seaman's burial at sea. And this was about the only thing they agreed to do. And I went and I got the ashes, and, and uh, they flew us up to Batmaine. I saw the captain. The captain was advised that there was going to be a burial at sea. And uh, we're on our way to, uh, on the shakedown cruise on our way to Panama. He turned around and he said, well, he ran into me. He says, when do you want to hold a service? I said, well, Captain, that's up to you. He said, no, it's up to you. I said, it's really up to you. He said, you got the death certificate, right? I said, no, I don't have it. I, I didn't think I needed it. He said, yeah, this is going to be an official burial. Let's see, we need the death certificate. I'll tell you what, when we get to Panama, call his wife and send everything out to, the, to San Francisco. I said, all right, which I did, which he did. We sailed. We sailed, and I ran into the captain. And the captain says, well, when do you want to hold a service? I said, Captain, it's up to you. He said, no, it's your friend. It's up to you. Seeing that I had a choice, I turned around and said, Captain, seeing that it's my choice, I would like to bury him on the international dateline, if it's, if it's all right for you. He says, all right, when we get to the international dateline, we'll bury him. Now, it was important to me, ladies and gentlemen, because as far as I'm concerned, if there's any one person that should be buried on the international dateline, that's an alcoholic. Because we are truly international. We have been internationalists since the very beginning of time. We go all the way back. They've written about us in parchment, on stone, in the Bible. Wherever, you know how old the alcoholic is? We're as old as fermentation. That's how old we are. We go back to the beginning of fermentation. I mean, there was the Iceman and Neanderthal Man, and right alongside of them was us, the Drunken Man. We're right there with them. And if anybody should go down on a plank on the international dateline, it's an alcoholic. And that day come, ladies and gentlemen, and God pulled out all the stops. The sky was just ablaze with colors. The sea was like glass. 
And after dinner, all of a sudden, you could feel the ship trembling as it's slowing down for the service. And the, all the passengers came out, and the crew come out, and they had the plank there with the two cadets, and they had the American flag and the ashes underneath it. And before I left San Francisco, I had bought six long stem roses, five red, one for each one of his children, and a yellow for the, for the, uh, the wife. And I had them stapled together with the, uh, that plastic serenity prayer card, like a bouquet. And the captain had agreed to close the service with the Our Father. And they read the service and they dumped it and the ashes went over and the, uh, the flowers went and all of a sudden you hear three long blasts from the ship's whistle saluting a departed brother. And you can feel the ship starting to speed up and the black smoke belching out. And all of a sudden the booze broke out and all of a sudden the party, the burial of a seaman took place. And I remember drifting back ass and way, way in the, in the wake I could see the flowers spinning in the wake. And I looked at the sea and I looked at the sky. And I mean, this tremendous feeling that here I am, cold, sober, burying this friend of mine, this drunk. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know what went through Roy's head when he was drunk and he dove out that window. But here he was on the international dateline being buried with AA dignity, being buried by AA fellowship, being buried by us. I had gotten... The longitude, the latitude, I had photographs taken when I got to, to Yokohama. I mailed it to his wife. So at any time, she can go to the map and trace out the longitude and latitude and say, here's where my son was buried. And the children can turn around and say, here's where my father was buried. And today, I'm sure the grandchildren can turn around and say, this is where. And say it with pride. Say it with dignity. I learned in AA, freely given, freely. They have no idea about AA, these kids. And then I, I had signed on as an internationalist. And uh, there was this, this priest, this missionary, way up in the back hills of Taiwan. And I had corresponded with him. And he was a loner. This guy was sober five years and never told a story face to face to another alcoholic. And he said, Brian, if this at all possible, he said, if you ever get here, I'd like to take the fifth step. And one day the ship got in there, made arrangements, got a car and everything. We went clippity-clap over to the rice paddies, and I finally met him. And I spent the whole day taking a fifth step with him. And he'd go into these long tangents of Chinese, and he'd come back, and he'd talk to me in English and in and out in Chinese. And I realized how important it was that I had a sponsor, that I could go eyeball to eyeball and talk to another human being. Because what this man was saying was not what was written. What you think and what you say is two entirely different things. And I realized how lucky I was to have sobered up in New York, where no matter which way I turn, I'm running into another alcoholic talking to them. And on the same hand, I realized how blessed he was that there were people from GSO who uh, corresponded with him, people like me who searched them out. And what I came away from learning that is, ladies and gentlemen, this gift of sobriety we take with us no matter where we go. Don't ever be afraid to get out there and take your shots. Don't ever be afraid to get out and travel. Don't ever be afraid of getting to a country and thinking AA is not there when you get there. Because AA is there when you got there. You're AA and I'm AA. We're all AA. There's no big deal to any of this. It's a matter of reaching out to the next alcoholic. And I came back and with the help of the people in the program, they got me registered at Fordham University. I worked the tunnels during the day five and a half years going to school at night. In 1982, I graduated from, from Fordham University with a degree in fine art, something I had been interested in all my life. I left the tunnels in 87 with black lung. I could no longer work in the tunnels. 
I went into something else. I've been retired now, oh, since I think 1993. And ladies and gentlemen, I wish I could stand here and tell you, here I am, I got a college education, I'm retired, uh, April Fool's will be 29 years uh, sober, I got my driver's license, I wish I could stand here and tell you, I finally know what I want to be when I grow up. I'm really hitting my mark, here I am, I really know what's going on. But ladies and gentlemen, I can't. I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. And I found out in this program, it's really not that important to know what you want to be when you grow up. What is important is to recognize what I am not. I'm not that young man that the FBI took off on a ship in Mobile, Alabama and stood trial for near beating a man to death. I'm not that young man the FBI took off in New York in handcuffs and stood trial for mutiny. I'm not that young, dirty old man trying to panhandle the price of a drink. Thanks to you, ladies and gentlemen, I am not a lot of things today. I am not a lot of things. And by seeing and understanding the many things that I am not, slowly but surely, I begin to see the many things that I am. The greatest statement I can possibly make standing here, aside from the fact that I have not picked up a drink today, is thanks to you and this magnificent program, slowly but surely, slowly but surely, I'm becoming the person I drank to be. Slowly but surely, I'm seeing and hearing and feeling and doing all the things that I drank to do. Slowly but surely, I'm becoming me. Ladies and gentlemen, on my right bended knee, I thank the Almighty God for each and every one of you. And on my other knee, kneeling in the floor of AA, I thank each and every one of you for me. Thank you for me, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you.